Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Mosaic Life Podcast. My name is Trey Kaufman. The Mosaic Life Podcast is a podcast on happiness, and it aims to explore why so many of us chase it, and yet so few of us ever find it. You can show your support for the Mosaic Life Podcast by following me on Instagram at Trey Kaufman. That's T-R-E-Y-K-A-U-F-F-M-A-N, where you'll get podcast content on top of pictures and video of all of the other passions I have in this life. One of my favorite parts of this podcast is staying connected with the guests who spend their very valuable time with me to have a conversation for the sake of helping others in their personal development journeys. Each time I'm given the chance to re-engage with guests turned friends, to hear about the work they've been doing to change the world is such an incredible blessing. Nathan is certainly no exception to that, and our relationship goes back exactly 70 episodes to when he first visited the podcast on episode 32. Just as the pandemic was hitting its unfortunate stride, while Ernie was still hosting by my side, and long before I knew what this podcast would turn into. And what I respect about Nathan even more than the transformational work he does with men is his consistency. It takes a person who has mastered himself or herself to remain absolutely steadfast in their mission and with the words they choose to put into the world. Nathan Kohlerman is the founder of New Intention. His mission is to redefine human optimization and modern masculinity through the mind, body, heart, and soul. He is an embodiment coach and transformational speaker who guides others on the spiritual path of self-discovery, taking those he serves from misalignment to total embodiment. He has a strong background in transpersonal psychology, trauma-informed practices, metaphysical healing, addiction recovery, and energy dynamics. It was such an honor having Nathan back on, and we checked off a handful of topics we've been chatting about bringing into this conversation, including childhood trauma and how that affects our development into adulthood, gender roles and hypersexualization, and plant-based medicine and our egos. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Please welcome my good friend, Nathan Kohlerman. Nathan. What is up, Trey? How you doing, brother? Good, man. How the hell are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Absolutely uh, phenomenal, man. Just hanging out with the kiddo today. Got my daughter. That's awesome, man. How old is she now? She is eight now. That's that's crazy. That's uh, I, I I don't personally have kids, but I I imagine the time flies by for you. Uh, I know we, we haven't even spoken in almost or probably close to a year, so I just I have to imagine things are moving fast. Uh, seeing her grow up, yeah, it's moving incredibly fast. And um, we head out to New York next week to see my son, who's turning five oh, on wow. the twenty fifth, which is even crazier because <laughs> it was felt like almost yesterday man just like holding them both just like i was really reflecting on this the other day just like holding them both and how like small and little they used to be you know my daughter's like on like chat video games and like texting (laughs) me and like sending me emojis and like unlocking new keyboards and i'm like who are you like who is this little human who is just like this supreme intelligent little being it's (laughs) (laughs) You're going to have a little influencer on your hands soon. Oh, I believe it. I believe it. She sees me on my phone all the time. She goes, Dad, are you going to post a reel today? I'm like, oh, my God. How do you know what a reel is? How do you know what a reel is? Dude, she's probably on TikTok. She's doing all the kid things that I don't even – I won't even pretend to understand. I'm just – that's so far beyond me. Yeah, it's so funny. She's like, Dan, are we going to make a TikTok today? <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh, it's oh crazy, that's man. amazing, man. It's well, crazy. yeah, dude, I, I was looking, I, I was browsing the website, uh, the podcast website, and I was just curious. I couldn't remember the last time we did this. It was May 10th, 2020, and who knew 
what the world was going to do in in that time frame. It's just amazing all that has changed. Wow. Yeah, I can't believe that was over a year ago. Yeah. Wow. A yeah. lot has changed. A lot has changed. <laughs> Absolutely. Obviously, with the world, which I do want to talk about, and I, I feel like I, I talk about that a fair amount, but I, I, I know you probably has a, have a very unique perspective because – I generally like to say, you know, there I saw two different mindsets throughout the pandemic, you know, people who had a growth mindset or the people who, you know, were severely affected, not necessarily from actually contracting COVID, but people who were affected mentally. Now, a subset of that, I feel like there's a, a big concern about addiction, which I know you have dealt with tremendously. So, I mean, ha, do, do you still work with people who are struggling with that sort of thing? Did you see a lot of issues over the past year in that regard? Yeah, 100%. And, you know, my, my lens of addiction has changed a little bit. You know, I think when we had first talked, you know, I was, you know, pretty early on in, in the phases of kind of developing how to approach it. And what I realized was, you know, the thing that I've seen most and, you know, we're still kind of, you know, dealing with the backblast of it, right, right. Is a lot of people during the pandemic, right. Went into the fawn response, you know, from the, yeah. you know, fight, flight, freeze, fawn response cycle, yeah. you know, when there's trauma, right. you know, and even though there wasn't a, you know, severe, right. I'll call it because most people think of trauma and they're like, Oh yeah, it's when somebody's like beaten or, or abandoned or something like that. But sure. You know, when we start seeing these like very like micro traumas come into play, when we start seeing these very complex cases where, you know, isolation, we start seeing someone, you know, even from childhood being told that they're not allowed to do something. Now they're yeah. telling they're not allowed to go outside. It's kind of <laughs> yeah. reigniting these small, small micro, you know, complex post-traumatic stress symptoms that, resulted mostly in what I saw as codependency. Yeah. And it was that, you know, someone and people seeking connection nonstop, nonstop, whether it was through social media, whether it was through, you know, just calling somebody every day or something like that. And I saw people, yeah, they had the growth mindset or they had the fixed mindset. But, you know, we saw a lot of people also, you know, starting to isolate or wanting to yeah. connect. Right. And I think those were the two main factors that really drove what type of mindset and what state of being that they would find themselves in predominantly for the most of the time. And that would actually result in if they didn't have that connection, it would result in an addiction, right? People were yeah. drinking like crazy. People were overindulging in food. People were, you know, clinging onto toilet paper right. because yeah. they had this like fear of death, right? Yeah. This, this, if I lose everything, I will die. So I have to grab and hoard and hold on to as much as I can to guarantee my survival. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating to me. I, I really like how you brought childhood into it because I, I'm so far from a psychologist, but it, I, so much of who we are today today obviously stems from how we were raised as as children and i i guess i hadn't thought of that you know when you're told no no you can't have that that is something that really sticks with us it becomes a, a trigger point for us as we turn into adults and when you talk about uh the fawn response and and micro what did you say what what did you say micro uh um, shoot what did you say yeah, mostly like micro traumas and micro -traumas, like yeah. complex complex post traumatic stress. Yeah, and I I, I fear that when somebody faces a, a micro trauma, it is they they don't perceive it as tra traumatic enough to seek help, and so we try to deal with it ourselves, and then we end up digging a deeper hole that we just find ourselves get, getting stuck in. I mean, is that generally how it? It works. I mean, do people really find themselves in a deep, dark place because they they don't feel worthy of, of asking for help? I, 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 I'm, I'm so green with this. I'm just curious where that stands in, in your line of work. Yeah. So from a more trauma informed approach, as we might call it, really, yeah. you know, when we start seeing these things from childhood start to surface, 
You know, most of our core beliefs about um, ourselves or our environment are held within the subconscious mind and developed in very early stages. Normally from zero to seven years old, we're found in a theta wave state, right? We are really truly these, you know, organisms that act as sponges where we have, you know, these implicit and explicit messages that are given to, you know, ourselves from others and our external environment. Because with a child, there's not really a sense of decision-making. There's not really a sense of self really established, which is why we start seeing earlier stages of a personality being developed. Right. So these beliefs are formed at very early stages in our life during that childhood process. And primarily these beliefs are also reinforced or calcified with the way our primary caretakers related to us. Right. So, when you have a parent, let's say, and we'll look at a, at a micro trauma, I'll call it, where the parent is always telling the kid, no, 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 right? Over right. time, right. right? Every single time this person is told no and no and no and no and no, it's these small micro traumas again and again and again and again and again. And it's this constant feeling and state of being rejected. So this fear of being rejected, right? starts illuminating again and again and again. So the person at a deep subconscious level will always seek out opportunities and experiences that reinforce it because at the subconscious level, the person is seeking to heal that initial stage, that initial point in which someone had once rejected them or their sense of self to where they adopted this core belief of who they are and they're not worthy of being told yes. So even when they are told yes, even if they ask for help and they, and this person's like, yes, I will help you. The question is, do they fully receive that help? Right. Because that instilled belief is so far underneath the surface where even if they're asking for help, they don't know how to accept it. They don't know right. how to receive it. So the integration process of that is really complex and really unique based on the individual experience. If yeah, that makes sense. It does make sense. So from a parent's perspective, what is what is a better way of saying no? I mean, we again, not having children, we I don't believe we can give everything to our children that they ask for. And so when it comes to saying no in a way that is not detrimental to the development, how how does that generally work? I mean, is it is it a matter of explaining why what it is they're asking for is not in their best interest right now? Or is, is it just, is it being more thoughtful with your approach to, I, for, I, for lack of a better word, you know, negativity or you know, a negative response? Yeah. So that's a really great question. And I mean, at least just in my own personal experience with my daughter, right. You know, I won't outwardly say just like, no, because right. when there's just a hard cut, like a hard cold, no, right. It's almost like someone's just like slamming a door in your face. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, So, you know, providing reasoning, providing understanding, right? Because, and it's also observing how do they respond? Even if you do say, no, sweetheart, not right now, how do they respond? And then through that response, you're able to observe, like, I can see you're upset by me saying no. Why are you upset that I said no? What is it that you would rather have? Why do you want this? Okay, can we find something else now that will provide a same or similar stimulus that will give you that you know gratification of what you might be seeking but can we also provide alternative options that give you the freedom and the power of choice in the process and that's yeah. just something personally that i've used that works really well no that's fascinating and I, i'm thinking i'm thinking about adulthood right now i'm fast forwarding a few years and and how it does feel when you ask somebody i don't know let's just say you ask somebody a friend you know this isn't a, a dating situation but you ask a friend hey do you want to go to this festival with me over the weekend i don't know one example and they they flat out say no i know what that that feels like you feel kind of betrayed by your friend perhaps they're busy that day or perhaps they just simply don't want to spend money on that or perhaps they don't have an interest in in what you're doing but that feeling of rejection that you get when you get told a flat out no it is it is all too real just thinking about it throughout this conversation now. So that, that, that feeling obviously does not go away throughout our, our teenage into adulthood years. Right. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because anytime that happens now, right, again, it's the, 
you know, the nature of it is seeking it subconsciously, not saying we're like finding every single potential situation to be told no, but when it does present itself, it's the opportunity to manage it, you know, and it's how we manage and how we cope with it because our coping mechanisms that we established may not have been effective, right? Because normally, again, if we, if we develop certain coping mechanisms through rejection or certain coping mechanisms through abuse or anything that it might be, you know, kind of referring back into this fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response, normally, if there's a sense of chronic hypervigilance in when we are in a state of survival, when we're in a fight response, it might present itself through narcissistic behaviors. Yeah. In a flight response, it might show up in obsessive compulsive behaviors. In a freeze response, it might result in disassociative behaviors. And in a fawn response, it may result in codependent behaviors. And of course, right, this is simply just us perceiving the past and the present moment, but we're also still unconsciously seeking out to recreate the traumatic experience to complete the event or run away from it at all costs. So situationally, it'll be different. Sometimes we might have a fight response. Sometimes we might have a flight response. Sometimes we might have a freeze response, just depending on situationally what's happening in the environment. So if we can expand our awareness and understand, okay, how are we managing this right now? What is my first implied response that wants to show its show face? Right. How do I manage that? How do I work with this rather than let it, you know, push me back into that state of suffering that I once was so familiar with? Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I, I it, it seems to me there has been a trend over the last five years. It's so, so many of the trends that I, I kind of catch on to come from Silicon Valley and come from that that whole tech industry. And I have seen an uptick in people taking back their time and being comfortable saying no. And I think that plays into this conversation in that we can obviously value our time, but we need to be thoughtful and cognizant of how we say no to the people whom hopefully we respect or at least care enough about to not put them in one of those um, fight or flight or fawn or freeze responses. And so that's uh, going back to your point about how you talk to your daughter, how you thoughtfully tell her no. As an adult speaking to an adult, do you have any advice on how you tell other adults no in a way that allows them to, you know, take something away from it as, as opposed to be harmed by it? Yeah, hundred percent. And really what we're talking about is establishment of boundaries, yeah. right? Yeah. And when we talk about boundaries and this is kind of a, you know, a fad thing kind of getting thrown around very loosely right now, in my opinion, where people are like, Oh, you need to set stronger boundaries. You yeah. need to just tell them, no, you need to tell them that you don't have time for this. Yeah. And, you know, I think there could be a more mindful approach, you know? So when I look at boundaries, I look at Well, we have internal, external boundaries. So we need to communicate these things both internally and externally, depending on the situation. And when it comes down to the boundaries and how to establish them, it's also checking in what type of boundary is required for this situation. Do I need a cerebral boundary? Do I need an energetic boundary? Do I need a physical boundary? And this can come in many forms. We can say it in a lot of different ways, but you know, I use three primarily when I work with people, right? And it's, you know, saying it with love and a deeper connection to self. And one example could be like, well, that's not resonating with me. I I don't really, you know, cerebrally resonate with that. I don't understand that. So therefore, I'm not going to partake in that. And there can be an energetic boundary, right? This does not serve me, right? This moment does not serve me. This, you know, experience does not serve me, me going to the bar. It's not serving my goals right now. So I'm going to respectfully decline because I need to, you know, honor my own boundary here and I need to keep my energy in places that serves me best. And, you know, with, especially within partnerships, physical boundaries, right? I think in relationships, intimate relationships, you know, especially, you know, as a man, I've always struggled with one being able to take my own space, right? Yeah. Just because of my own childhood stuff and what I've come to realize. But, you know, really asking someone as well, like, I need you to honor my space here. Like, yeah. can we put some some distance between us? Can we put some time between us? And, you know, can can you maybe not touch me right right yeah. now? Right. I think all those forms of boundaries are ways to communicate to people that provides an opportunity for maybe also to seek understanding because when we say like, this isn't resonating with me or this doesn't serve me, or, you know, I, I I would appreciate if you'd honor my space right now. 
I think that provides an opportunity for a conversation to occur for us to seek an understanding of one another in a place where it's not just flat out rejection, but there's communication at that point. Yeah. Oh man, that, that, that resonates so well with me. It gives me chills. Uh, I, I especially appreciate talking about the, uh, the energetic boundary and the, um, the example you gave about not going to the bar. This doesn't serve me. I, I, I doubt I had spoken about it last time we talked, but I am close to two, two years sober from alcohol. I just, I, I started setting boundaries for myself and I started having that exact same conversation, realizing that I'm capable of doing so, realizing that no, going out to the bar multiple times a week, drinking a bottle of wine multiple times a week is not serving the goals that I have established for myself. I have always told myself that I wanted to start a podcast, write a book, start my own business, anything, but I wasn't doing it because alcohol was coming first in that order. And so that the way you explain that conversation is what I try and fail to articulate to people so often when they ask me why I quit drinking. So what you just said there was absolutely perfect. Yeah. And I really appreciate you sharing that because, you know, it kind of circles back to what we were talking about with the addiction. Yeah. Right. And how addiction affects us. And I think there's a lot of stigmatization around addiction and trying to see these things as, you know, frowned upon or they're bad or they're negative, but you know, addictions are gifts, right? They are simply the coping mechanisms that come in many forms and we all experience it to some degree, whether it's drinking, whether it's, you know, connection, love, relationships, sex, porn, anything like that. And, you know, when we look at, you know, our ritualistic behaviors that occur over and over and over again, that don't truly serve what we're trying to do, as you had said, you know, the alcohol and the wine, they came first, you know, these create these self-absorbed illusions that develop uncontrollable obsessive compulsive desires that progress, right? And there are negative consequences that come. Sometimes that we have personality changes or shifts. And what's really happening is it's blocking us from our true self and our true purpose because what it seeks and what it provides, I should say, is the instant gratification and relief from the particular feeling or affair that we're experiencing whether that's an overwhelm, whether that's our stress, whether it's the pain, whether it's, you know, trauma, if you want to use that label, right? And it's just being able to identify and understand, well, why am I using the substance? Why am I looking at porn? Why do I keep going from relationship to relationship to relationship? Why do I have this feeling to always do something rather than just be still? Yeah. What is really there? What can I seek to understand a little bit more? So that way now, once I understand it, I can start implementing more constructive behaviors and establishing the boundaries that are more aligned with where I'm going. Yeah, absolutely. I love that practice of asking why. I don't think we ask why nearly enough. And when it comes to problem solving, especially in our own lives, when we're seemingly not as honest with ourselves as as we really should be asking why seven or eight times can really help us dig down to the real reason why why we're doing something and so when it comes to bad habits or behaviors i think that's that's a, a wonderful practice just to or a, a mental exercise just to really get a firm understanding of, of where that that that, that poor thinking, that poor line of thinking comes in. For me, a lot of it was suppressing uh, anxiety, which I, I think a lot of people deal with. And probably a, a lot of people over the last year have have really taken up alcohol in, in higher degrees because of that. So that that why practice seems to be a really good, a really good one. Oh, 100%. And, you know, when we're asking why to ourselves, when we start interacting with others, we're going to start asking why more. Right. And once we seek to understand, now we're actually seeking connection. We're not seeking justification. You know, yeah. when I went through Landmark back in 2017, you know, they used a phrase that I still use to this day that, you know, when people interact and even when we're having dialogue with ourselves, we're already always listening, right? Yeah. We're already always listening to what we might think is what's going to come out of their mouth or what we're already thinking is their problem. So that way we can provide a solution (laughs) that justifies and solidifies the value that we have to provide in this connection. Right. Yes. And I think it shows up, especially as men. Right. And I primarily work with men because 
you know, we have a tendency to want to fix things, right? Yeah. That's what we were taught, right? Oh, this thing's broken. Go fix it, right? Oh, there's things to be fixed. Okay, grab the husband or grab the man of the house. And this is his responsibility. And then we tend to play that out in a lot of different ways. So when we start asking why and we start leading with a process of inquiry, and we seek understanding, this is where real connection can be established. This is where we real understanding and, and that genuine, you know, energy in between one person and another or one person and the self can truly occur. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Man, um, you said something on Facebook a, a day or two ago, and I, I'd like to read just a, a very short piece of it because the entire thing was extremely moving. And I think that'll guide us in uh, a, a slightly different direction here. But uh, part of your post said, it may have felt like what you thought was love, but if you thought for even a second that you had a claim to her, the truth is that you only loved the void she filled when you were in her presence. And that was very moving. And uh, the kind of the, the, the image of the uh, post, I mean, we can read it verbatim if we want, but basically you had sex with her and now you think you own her. And that I think so many men feel that, that sense of entitlement, that sense of ownership over somebody when we, we, have, we, when we have sex with somebody. And I, 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 going back to your point about codependency, I imagine a lot of that feeling of entitlement stems from that. Or am I wrong? Yeah. No, hundred percent. And, you know, when I wrote that, you know, of course I have personal experience from this. It's something that I had realized, you know, maybe later on last year, things that I didn't quite realize where it was coming from. And I started this inquiry process. I started asking, well, why do I feel as though I possess someone? Why do I feel like I own someone? And, you know, even more through a recent experience in my partnership, right, there was, you know, certain aspects and variables moving underneath where, you know, there's a, there's a challenging incident, right. Between me and, and one of her previous partners and it, and it triggered me and I was like, well, why am I triggered? And, oh, this is, this is really, you know, bringing up things that I used to do. Yeah. So when I wrote that and when I'm, 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 what I'm sharing there is the fact that, you know, when we look at the entirety of love, right? It doesn't, it doesn't possess, it doesn't control, it doesn't anything. It's very conditional upon that, right? Because we feel as though when we don't have it anymore, therefore we don't have love anymore and we can't possess people. We can only possess materials and human beings are not material objects. They're not material possessions. They're not substances, right? right? Because we imply using the word my, when we say it's my wife or my girlfriend or, yes. you know, my car, right? We, we have a place of possession, which doesn't really exist. And that codependency aspect, you know, that, that clinging on more so, I wouldn't say is a, is a, a, a specific aspect of codependency. I think it's just a byproduct of the okay. codependent relationship, the, the energy that exists between two people. And it's this feeling deep down underneath that if I lose this, I, I will lose love, right? If I don't yeah. have this, if I don't have possession, then I cannot control it. It's a method and it's a measure of control that really brings up a feeling that wasn't experienced for a really long time. You know, maybe yeah. in a home growing up, you didn't feel very safe. Maybe in a home growing up, you didn't feel as though you had a sense of control maybe growing up, you didn't have a sense of being loved or understood or things were taken from you. So therefore you adopted the belief that things that you love or things that you like will always be taken against your will. Right. So what do we do? We try to cling onto it. We try to control it. We try to suffocate it. So that way it can't go anywhere. And we try to oppress it. If it tries to escape whatever ideology that we've established for it. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's extremely interesting. Um, as you talk about that, I think of two very specific scenarios. And for me, I, I, perhaps for yourself, and I, I think we talked about this briefly last time. Um, I mean, as, as people look at this show art, it's no secret you're a good-looking guy. And so I imagine that you know, in in your history, there there was there wasn't an there wasn't an issue attracting women. And I have been fortunate in the sense that, well, 
somewhat fortunate in the sense that in high school, I was kind of a nerdy, skinny white kid. And then as I came into college, I found myself a little bit more and I started to uh, catch the eyes of women. So I think I started to feel in my 20s a sense of you can call it entitlement, you can call it whatever you want, but I, I felt like I deserved the that attraction, I, I deserved the adoration, the sex, and then finally realizing that wasn't the case in my early 30s, I, I kind of did a 180. But then I, on the other end of the spectrum, you have the, 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 the guys who don't necessarily come into themselves and don't have the opportunity to grow into what society would call a traditionally good looking man, which I, I don't, I don't like saying it that way, but it's the way I think our, our culture is. And then I think there's a, a different sense of entitlement that, Hey, women are not finding me attractive. And so I am entitled to sex. And I, there, there are many different, I guess, poorly chosen words to describe these types of people like neck beards, that sort of thing, very derogatory. But to me, they're, is two different ends of of entitlement that coming from a, a man's point of view, and I, 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 I have you experienced both ends of that spectrum, not necessarily with yourself, but in the people that you work with, and how do you deal with that? Yeah, that's a fantastic question, and you know, I've I've seen levels and layers of it. You know, but, you know, growing up, I was, you know, the small, scrawny, you know, as we'll label it nerdy, right? I don't yeah. think there's anything wrong with being nerdy right. or passionate about something, right? Whether it's video games or anything that society wants to label as a nerd, which is yeah. bullshit. <laughs> um, you know, but I experienced that, you know, and what came from that was not this entitlement to sex, but almost like this core belief that I'm not worthy of it. Right? Right, right. Or that it's shameful or that people like me don't deserve love. Right. Even with sex present within a relationship, which is how it showed up for me later on. So once yeah. I did, you know, stepped into myself around high school and I started, you know, gaining seven inches and got rid of my glasses and got rid of my braces and got the preppy haircut and put on yeah. a polo and throw on some jeans. And now I'm wearing a jersey when I'm playing football. And it was started becoming very easy to get girls. Right. There was a sense of entitlement like, oh, okay, well, now that I'm pretty, which I call pretty pleasure or right. pretty privilege, we'll call it, you know, because there is a level of privilege in society right now as sure. well. Sure. Right. And pretty privilege exists. Right. If you look a certain way, then, you know, you're, you know, entitled to certain things. And those are the people that get the girls. Those are the people that get the guys. Those are the people that are having sex on the weekends and getting invited to parties. And, you know, then there's this calcification and the support of the ego, yeah. which is solidified through personal image, which I see a lot with men now, right? And what I'm seeing now with men too is they may never had that relationship, but now that they have it because of what they observed in the people who had pretty privilege, that is the belief of what happens within relationships. So this sense of entitlement around how relationships are supposed to be, yeah. what roles we're supposed to fill within relationships, and also growing up, right? What was what were the roles and the responsibilities that were established by my paternal and maternal figures that created the belief to begin with, that actually yeah. perpetuated and was reinforced through society? So what we see here is not a sense of entitlement, but the entitlement is the byproduct of the belief based yeah. on how we witness and observed our paternal maternal figures, how we observed social cultural aspects, what we saw growing up and how we experienced it ourselves. And when we wrap all of that together and we put a big bow on it, we now have this role and responsibility established in our mind to where now the expectations are presented that actually are labeled as the entitlement itself. If that makes sense, yeah, it makes sense. That's so interesting, and I, it's it's very, it's super interesting to think about uh, over the last, well, let's just say a hundred years, and the way that gender norms have changed and and roles we play within the households. And I think now more than ever, we have an over sexualization of everything in our culture, from advertising to just the way we raise our our our, our children, from uh, you know. I don't know. I don't, again, I don't know much about, you know, what kids do, but there's the over-sexualization on social media or even, you know, when it comes to uh, beauty pageants or anything like that. 
I just it's so interesting to see the way gender norms are changing, even as the 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 over hypersexualization in our society, in my personal viewpoint, continues to grow much more than it has over the last again, a hundred years. So I, I don't know how much of a role that plays in, in some of these, these feelings of entitlement or privilege. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, you know, I'll give you my thoughts on this because, you know, when we look at hypersexuality and how it's displayed, yeah, I'm more asking what's driving this person to express themselves or to showcase this in a hypersexual manner. Right. And a lot of the times that comes from a deep background of sexual shame. Right. Yeah. And like you said, in the last hundred years, Right. Because religion is very prominent. Religion yeah. is a huge factor in contribution where if you don't have sex or if you have sex before marriage, it's a bad thing. If you are wearing certain clothes, you're considered a slut. If right. you take a selfie in the mirror, you're a man whore. Or if you're having sex with a lot of different people and a lot of different partners, but you're not, you know, committed to an actual relationship, you know, again, you're a slut or you're a man whore or X, Y, and Z. And there's a lot of shame and stigma around that to where if we continue to oppress it, just like if we continue to fill a bathtub with water with a plug in it, not able to drain or empty, it's going to overflow and it's going to show in these hyper-masculine forms or hyper, you know, sexualized forms. And I say hyper-masculine because that outward expression is that masculine energy coming forth. It is that suppressed energy over so long that was shamed, that was neglected, that was avoided, that is now surfacing subconsciously as a means to seek some type of understanding or confirmation, I should say, from others saying that it's okay. It's okay for you to wear a bikini thong on Instagram. It's okay for the younger generations to wear these certain types of clothes, which I don't necessarily agree with as a father, but I can see where it comes from. And at a certain degree, I also have to catch myself judging it and, and reflecting it back to saying, well, why do I believe that this is wrong? And if we continue to oppress this or suppress it, how will it show up later in their years? Yes. Right. And how do we find a healthy medium for this young woman, for this girl to be comfortable in her body, to feel safe in her body, to express herself as freely as she is able to at the age of whatever she's at, and also I'll keep her protected at the same time, you know? Yeah. And I think that there is a really interesting level of discernment that happens there because, you know, I don't want my daughter up on stage wearing, you know, very bare minimal clothing. Right. Right. But she's also wearing a little two piece bi- bikini already, you know, at the swimming pool. And if that's what she likes to wear, and if that's what makes her feel comfortable and confident, then why would I say, no, you have to wear a one piece? Because right. where is that coming from? Can she be in that as long as I'm around, as long as I'm protecting her? Right. Because yeah. I think there are certain roles there, but there's also a very, again, thin line discernment of understanding what do I feel as a parent or what do I feel as an observer of whatever experience is happening, whether it's through Instagram or in these pageants that is deemed socially acceptable or socially irresponsible, you know, yeah. and, and where do we draw that line? How do we implement other ways and, and methods or procedures that reinforce, Hey, this is why we're wearing these things, right? This is what it's really doing. It's not to hypersexualize you as a young woman, but maybe it's to promote your self-confidence, right? And if we can come from it, from a place where we can promote confidence over anything else or an image that we're trying to establish, I think that's really where the, the root lies, right? Yeah. So I'm writing down this question because I don't want to forget it. So you gave, you gave a good how, or you gave a good, you know, why we should have, uh, where we should come from with those, with those conversations. But in a world that is so incredibly divided with the cancel culture on one side, with the far right on the other, it's so hard to live that in between what I like to call the nuance and have conversations that aren't that don't leave us at each other's throats. And so I, I wonder how we have, we, how we actually do have that conversation with people and we find a good way to, 
I don't, we're never going to agree on anything we're, on everything. How I, I feel like it's going to be extremely difficult to say, Hey, it's okay for uh, my daughter to, to wear a two piece when I'm around her because I'm protecting her. It's not like we're promoting her on Instagram or anything like that, but how do we have that conversation? So we can all have level heads about how we raise our children, about how we allow girls to grow up in a way that promotes a strong, healthy mindset around their bodies, but is not over-sexualizing them, but at the same time, in a way that feels good. So I, I just... I don't know. I, I don't expect you to have an answer as to the, the the how question, but it just it seems like in a world that is always connected and so at each other's throats that it's so extremely difficult to actually do it in a way that we can speak calmly. Yeah, yeah, and I think you nailed it. Right? It's like you're going to have a dualistic point of view on both ends. Yeah. Right. And very seldomly. Well, I find an opportunity really to have a unified conversation, right? Yeah. Because when people are looking at black and white or right or wrong or right or left or this or that, right? We're acting from duality consciousness. Right. We're having conflicting belief systems opposing one another and even looking at, you know, opposing forces within physics, right? You have an opposing forces within physics and there's constantly a level of tension in between 100%. Yeah. And yeah, everybody's going to have their own belief systems. And quite frankly, people are not going to agree with it. Even what I was just talking about, there are probably people that are going to listen that would be like, no, that's fucking wrong, which I can, I can respect that though, right? Yeah. Because you have your belief, I have mine. And I think the how here is not so much how do we have these conversations with each other, but how do we have these conversations with our daughters? How do we have these conversations yeah. with our partners? How do we have these conversations with our friends? And, you know, can we, you know, seek to understand again, what do you believe is right? What do you believe in your opinion is acceptable? And why do you feel that way? What would happen if you were presenting it in another way? What would it look like? Or what would it feel like if rather than you operating from here, could you place yourself over here and feel what that might feel like? What does that feel like to you, right? And if there is a level of resistance, if there is a level of disagreement, why is that there? And can we seek to understand for a moment what it would be like on the other side of something? Yes. And the same conversations occur in other aspects when we start saying, well, what if it doesn't go this way? Well, what if it does? Right. right. And it's just seeking the other side of the equation. And it's not so much finding the common ground, but it's presenting an opportunity for the other person to see the other side of it, to see what might be possible to where now both people can have an understanding of where one another comes from. And then they both take that information and apply in whatever way feels best for them. Right. Yeah. Because the way I raise my daughter or the way I communicate and educate my daughter on these things is going to be completely different than someone else. Right. Yeah. I'm going to talk to my daughter about, you know, what sexuality is. I'm going to talk to my daughter about, you know, what society feels. I'm going to, and from my lens, I'm going to talk to my daughter and I'm going to expose her to these things. So that way, these are not unfamiliar concepts when society introduces them to her later on. Yes. At an appropriate age that I feel is when she can comprehend it at a level where she can have the discernment and make a conscious choice of what it means to her, right? Yeah. Because that's really what we should see show up, right? When we see that sexual repression, when we see the sexual avoidance, when we, you know, sweep something under the rug and we act like it's not there, right? when we don't educate, right? And if we don't have these conversations, how will they react to a completely unfamiliar thing? It's like stepping into a country where you don't speak the language and it's having that culture shock, yeah. but we're having the same thing around sexuality. And I think there's a lot of, again, stigmatization around sexuality without the respect that it is our core fundamental survival mechanism to, to procreate. Right. Why are we suppressing and why are we shaming and why are we pushing something away that is necessary for us to continue the line of our species? Yeah. We are going against really truly an act of nature at that point yeah yeah 
Man, what I love about you is that you're so masterful in your words, um, both spoken and written. And what I really respect about the way you run your communities um, online is what I, I see most often is that you come to it with a, with, uh, with a certain level, with a high level of vulnerability. And I think that is perhaps what helped us helps disarm people, especially on the internet. And they can see that, hey, this is something I'm dealing with also. I'm trying to have this conversation around a sensitive topic. I want to hear what you think. You know, how how are you raising your kids? Let's not, let's not, let's not get in a fight. Let's just have a certain degree of a vulnerability within ourselves so we can figure out what we think is best for not only those in our lives, but others as well. And we can have, again, have that, that nuance there. But I, I really think it's that vulnerability aspect that you bring to uh, the work you do that, that I think adds tremendous um, credibility to you. Oh, thank you, man. And absolutely. You know, on that note, you know, I think vulnerability is really the bridge to connection, right? Because yeah. You know, like we we're kind of talking about how people were seeking connection during the pandemic and how, you know, certain layers and levels of codependency and connection were, were really desired. You know, if we're not vulnerable, then how are people going to relate to us? If right. we can't relate to something, how will it resonate with us? And if there's no resonation, then, you know, why are we spending the energy on it? You know? Yeah. I think it's such a crucial part and I think it's, you know, in society, it's, it's becoming more prominent that some people are being vulnerable in their own ways, right? I find a way that is disarming to where I can share my own personal experience, but I'm very, not cautious, but I'm very cognizant of what words are used, how it might be received, you know, am I potentially triggering something. And if there is going to be something triggered there, which I normally do, (laughs) you know, how do I create a space that allows someone to experience their trigger without immediately, you know, bastardizing what I'm saying, right? How do I do it in a way that can be openly received in a way that doesn't, you know, immediately put somebody's walls up? Because I like to provoke thoughts, I like to provide perspective, and I like to create an opening that allows opportunity for a deeper connection, whether that's through the DMs, whether that's through a phone call, whether that's through somebody even just sharing, you know, something through the comments, right? Because that in itself can do a lot of amazing things for people when they haven't had the opportunity to actually consider these things. And then to take it in a way that might be more conducive that in a way is not designed to shift their belief, but providing an opportunity for them to reflect on why they believe in the things in which they do. I love that. I absolutely love that. It shows an absolute tremendous amount of self-awareness and uh, that the fact that you're able to think two or three steps ahead, especially when it comes to the, the chaos that is the internet. I respect that so highly. I've, gotten into the habit recently of trying to consider how my spoken words um, in face-to-face conversation will affect the happiness or well-being of the people I'm I'm speaking with. I mean, from day-to-day conversation or even especially when it's more of a sensitive conversation. And while that's not going to prevent me from saying what is true to me will allow me to do it in a way that is more loving. And so I I really, really respect how you're able to kind of get a sense of how people would perceive your words. And again, not, not pull punches, but do it in a way that will, that will hopefully entice thoughtful and engaging conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's an art, right? Speaking is an art. Writing is an art expression is an art. And, you know, just as though you were going to go to the art museum down the street, you know, do you want to look at art that is, you know, in your face and kind of, you know, obscene, that's, (laughs) you know, slightly scary, or would you rather have, you know, something there? And of course, everybody has different tastes. Some people want someone who's going to push them harder. And some people want, you know, something that's a little bit more gentle. And yeah, you know, if I can find the healthy medium in between, right? It's not pulling punches, but it's providing right. a place of neutrality, 
right? Rather than that black or that white or that far swing on the pendulum to the right or the left, yeah. right? How do I found a, find a balanced and calibrated state in the middle? Like that's where I feel most aligned. That's where I feel yes. comfortable. That's where I feel open. So that way I can receive both sides of the equation as well. So I learn more about people in the process. Yeah. That's fantastic. Man, I did not mean to let this conversation get away from us. I, I, I want to bring it up at least briefly, uh, talking about new, uh, new intention. And also, I, I know previously we had talked about plant-based medicine, which I'm fascinated by, but I'm still very new to, to the science of it. And I just, if, if we can talk a little bit about the work you're doing in that field, I would absolutely, I'd be thrilled. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So talk to me, what is, I mean, what is, when you're working with people through your company and people come to you seeking uh, growth and development, I mean, what, what does that process look like for you? Yeah. So, you know, when people are seeking development, you know, it really depends on what they're looking for, you know, because I do offer a lot of different things depending on what individual needs, what individual um, resource or solution. Yeah. Right. And, you know, when somebody's seeking plant medicine, you know, the first thing I'm asking is, well, why do you want to sit with plant medicine? What have you heard about it? What do you know about it? Have you done your research? Do you know exactly what these medicines are designed for? What is it that you're experiencing that is driving you to want something in the first place? And do you feel that you're at a level where you have done some of the fundamental work underneath it? Because when we work with plant medicine, right, it's another tool. Just like any other method or modality or tool or technique I have in my toolbox, it's dependent on what an individual needs. And that's really when someone comes to me, I'm asking, what does your individualized roadmap to recovery look like? What does or what do you want out of this? Right. How do you want to feel? Right. And what's causing it? Right. Let's go back. Let's understand why you believe the things that you do. Let's understand why you think the things that you do. Let's understand why you're using drugs. Let's understand why you are experiencing difficulties in your relationship. Let's understand why you're having roadblocks in your business or why you're not productive or why you are procrastinating everything in your life. And let's solidify an understanding at a cognitive level first before we start you know, surfacing things at a deep unconscious level or subconscious level that you may not even be ready or willing to look at. So let's approach this more from a place where we can, we can bring things up naturally without the use of external tools. And if that is something that you would like to use, I'm a little bit more on the optimization side of things, right? How can we use plant medicine to optimize our state of being after we've done the fundamental work without any substances at all? Right. Because if we're experiencing certain, we'll call them addictions or coping mechanisms that require external validation, that require external support, let's learn how to generate that internally and then using things from the external world to optimize or enhance our experience in general. Yeah. So it really kind of depends on what somebody is requiring or desiring. It depends on their background. It depends on their, you know, medical status, right? Do you have any signs and symptoms of, you know, any type of mental health disorders? Do you have any, you know, signs or symptoms of, you know, or are you using medications? What does that look like? What does your lifestyle look like? Because when we seek personal development, it's not a linear pathway. Nothing's linear in this life. We all know this, right? So it's really designing that individualized roadmap to recovery. And it's that really carefully curated plan that is going to be conducive to what experience you want to live for the rest of your life, knowing that just like your heartbeat, it's going to oscillate and fluctuate, knowing you're going to have your ups, knowing you're going to have your downs, but what tools and what resources can we empower you with so that way you can walk with embodiment. You can feel embodied and aligned even in the times where you feel chaotic or misaligned. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating. Um, so when – I don't know. For, for me, what I've under, come to understand about plant-based medicine is that it allows us to – I don't think detach is the right word, but it allows us to 
kind of get a better understanding of our ego, which I, I think, at least for me, has played a, a major role in my life, especially over the last five years and getting an understanding of, of what or how it was motivating my thoughts, my words, my actions. And so has, for you personally, has, has plant-based medicine given you a better understanding of what role your ego has played in your life and the, the, the trauma you've gone through, uh, the, the addiction, has it been a big component of that? I think in certain ways it has. You know, but with where I stand now, I can honestly say that, and after working with a lot of other people as well, that, you know, plant-based medicine was kind of a shortcut, right? Right. It expedited and it sped up the process at certain points of time. Yeah. But even with these experiences, if we're not taking care of the foundational work beforehand, yeah. you know, as my first plant medicine experience was, it actually set me back. It actually created a stronger ego in a way. Yeah. And, you know, that's something a lot of people don't talk about. You know, we hear all the good things. We hear how it can, you know, oh, wow, I totally get my ego and I understand yeah. where this addiction comes from. And I, you know, understand all my behaviors and my patterns. But with understanding comes, you know, a wisdom that's extracted from the ego as well. Because as we advance and as we evolve, as we start to understand more our ego finds other ways for us to create more causes to more conflicts. Yeah. And then it kind of solidifies and calcifies some of the beliefs that we already had in the beginning. So in a way, yes, it's exposed parts of my ego. It has actually advanced my ego. It has allowed me to see different patterns and disruptions as they occur. But I can, I can say now that, you know, now it is more of an accessory rather than a necessity. Yeah. Because when we integrate those medicines, right, we we have to have an integration process. We have to have some type of understanding about ourselves before we just jump into these things, right? It's not for everybody. It's definitely not for everybody. And yeah. you know, if you're willing to step into that, then we we need to ensure that you have um an effective way to integrate it. We need to make sure that you have an effective way to understand it, an effective way to also combat, right? Not from a place of confrontation, but right. mitigation, right. right? How to mitigate these patterns and behaviors moving forward, because if not, it can be quite detrimental because now that we're aware of it, if we don't have the proper tools, when it shows up again, now that we're more aware, it's like watching ourselves in slow motion and we, and it's actually more painful. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's so, that's so great to know. I, 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 I've had conversations with any number of people who have wanted to experiment. And I I use that word intentionally experiment with uh, this type of medicine, but having that understanding that if we don't have good tools in our toolbox, as I think you said, to really get a firm grasp of of where we are emotionally and in our personal development, then there's, it, it can, cause more harm than good. So I love the approach that you're taking from a very fundamental point of view. It, it, it sounds fantastic. So I, I absolutely commend you for, for all of the work you're doing with, uh, with all of these incredible men. Yeah. Thank you. And, yeah. you know, but at first I didn't really think about this stuff, right. And I, right. I had right. to learn from personal experience and that's why, you know, if anyone ever wants to work with me, with plant medicine, if that's why, if that's, if, if anybody wants guidance, right. You know, I ensure that, Hey, before, before we sit with medicine, right. Let's, let's take some time beforehand. Let's develop a relationship. Let me give you some tools that you can consciously use when I'm not around and let's find a way to manage whatever you're going through at a fundamental level. So that way, when the doors get blasted open or when you start having a little bit more profound realizations around these things, you can take these fundamental basics. And once you step into these experiences, you can learn to bend and break the rules a little bit because you have a more mindful approach and you know yourself a little bit better. Right. And that's again, right now what I see in society, right. We'll call them spiritual communities. We'll call them plant medicine communities. And what I see a lot right now is people selling services, people taking others on retreats, yeah. people that may not have the qualifications or the understanding at what could really happen if something goes wrong. 
right? That's right. where I operate from. I'm asking the question, what if something goes wrong? Yeah. What am I going to do? How am I going to guide them? How am I going to walk with them even after this experience sets in? Yeah. You know, because we have these very profound and cathartic and multidimensional experiences, but then at the end of the day, you still have to go home. Yes. Right? You still have to sit with yourself. And if you don't have any tools in your toolbox, how are you going to manage that? Or will you fall back into old patterns or will you even go into even worse patterns because yeah. now you're feeling things at a much more intense level, right? And these are simply just questions that we must consider, not saying it's going to happen, right. but these are questions and conversations that we should be having. These are questions, not so much questions, but these are, this is information that should be delivered rather than, you know, oh, come drink ayahuasca and your whole life is going to be changed to <laughs> love and light, love and light, love and light. Yeah. Let's have the conversation of what happens when you're with your shadows? What happens when you're in really dark places? What are the thoughts you have about yourself? Because if you yeah. sit that with this and if you drink this ayahuasca if you, or if you eat this mushroom or if you take this LSD, these things could actually be exponentially enhanced. Yeah. And let's look at that situation and ask how are we going to manage that? Because that is a potential that exists. We cannot act like it does not exist. Right. You know, I think it's reckless if we don't present those opportunities. Absolutely. No, I mean, it, it, you need somebody who's going to be there for you after the fact to help you with the literal and the metaphorical hangover that inevitably becomes after we have this profound and life-altering experience, but not knowing where to go from there. And that's, it's so valuable that you, they, that you are there for them to help them make sense of it all. So that's, that's, that's incredible. Yeah. And I mean, you know, even the power of symbolism, right? How do we interpret yeah. dream? What are these things that we saw, right? Or are we just hallucinating and having these, you know, magical transcendent experiences, but how do we interpret them? Yeah. What do these things mean to us? And also these images, these archetypes, these symbols that we're seeing, these geometric patterns on the walls, how do we interpret them? What do they mean? What are they trying to show us? What are they trying to tell us? And how do we apply them in a practical three-dimensional way? Yeah. Because if we keep on seeking these experiences over and over and over again, and we're always trying to transcend and we're always trying to ascend, what are we doing here in the physical plane? What are we doing right. here in the physical body? Because if we keep trying to escape to higher realms, we're going to think that we don't belong here. And that's what I see a lot of when people have spiritual awakenings or when they think that they're a star seed or when they think that they're, you know, some type of, you know, extraterrestrial being and that they belong in the stars. You know, I have these conversations with one of my mentors a lot and he presents these as well. But, you know, we came into this body, we came into this earth to learn and to transform in three dimensional ways. Yeah. So the integration component of all spiritual experiences is necessary. And yeah. a spiritual experience can look like sitting with mushrooms. A spiritual experience can be sitting in traffic, depending on how you apply the tools that you have. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, what you just said about um, about not wanting to be in our physical bodies anymore, that reminds me of the movie Inception. Have you seen it? Yeah. Where we are living in dreams and dreams upon dreams and upon dreams where there are all these people in that in that basement chamber that they're just under uh, whatever the drug is they're, they're the rest of their lives because they they don't get value out of being in the physical realm anymore and that that makes that makes total sense to me if you're not going to take what you've learned through this experience and actually use it to benefit your waking life then I, i'm with you I, I don't think there's a point in exploring that until we have a better understanding of who we are here right Right, 100%. Yeah. yeah. Well, Nathan, man, it's been amazing catching up with you. Um, before I let you go, I do have a, a few closing questions that I like to ask my guests. Uh, the first of which, I like being a benefit wherever I can to the people who spend their time with me. And so I, I always like to ask, what resources are you looking for to continue your personal growth? And I ask that with the idea of if somebody's listening who can lend you those resources, they can reach out and say, hey, let's talk. Yeah. So more recently, I've been called to speak on stages. So anyone who has any resources, any connections, any opportunities, 
where I can be of service to step on stages, speaking on addiction, speaking yeah. on relationships, speaking on healthy masculinity, and speaking about anything in terms of, you know, the energies, right, or the necessary requirements to live a purposeful and powerful life would be greatly appreciated. That's fantastic. Um, I, I, I love that. Um, the next uh, question, I, I, I always like to ask this question because it allows me to build my reading list. Um, if you can name one book that has absolutely just changed your life, what would that book be and why? Yeah, I think the uh, last book that I gave you was The Way of the Superior Man, right? So there's yes, that one. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think another book here that would be really, really beautiful is The Waking the Tiger by Peter Levine. Okay. I, I feel like I've heard, I know I've heard his name before and I feel like I've heard the book. What, uh, what was it about that book that had such a big impact in your life? It's just the really deep, deep, deep understanding of trauma and how it works. Okay. Really. I think that's the easiest way to put it. Okay. That's, that's good to know. I will put both of those in the show notes. And then last but not least, if you could offer the audience one personal call to action that either you live your life by or you work with your clients to live their lives by, what would that be? Breathe. Breathe. I love it. <laughs> it's simple. It's perfect. And it's so profound. That's awesome, man. Um, how can people connect with you? How can they reach out to you? Um, Follow-up question for me personally. Are, are you in Arizona? Yes, I'm in okay. uh, Phoenix, Arizona. That's what I thought. Okay, cool. So, yeah, what is the best uh, way for people to reach out with you if they're interested in talking or working with you? Yeah, they can go to pretty much any one of my social channels, Instagram, TikTok, uh, Facebook are the main three that I'm using right now. I'm also speaking on some rooms on Clubhouse. And then, of course, I have LinkedIn, Twitter, and all that stuff too. And if they want to work with me, then they can go to one of the links in my bios on Instagram, and there's an application link right there. And then I'll also send you the application link as well, so you can put that in the show notes as well. That's that's perfect, man. Dude, it was so great catching up with you. I'm so excited we got to do this. I, I hope we can do it again in the future. I feel like we're just, again, scratching the surface. So my gratitude goes out to you for, for spending the afternoon with me. Thank you. Thank you for all you're doing in the world. I, I, I really, really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, brother. Appreciate you. It was great catching up. Always an honor. Always a pleasure. And I appreciate you taking the time today and having me on the show again. Again, I would like to extend a huge thank you to Nathan for joining me once again on the podcast. It's always such a pleasure and an honor to connect with you and have a conversation with you, my friend. So thank you so, so much for that. If you would like to learn more about Nathan, you can visit this episode's show notes at themosaiclifepodcast.com where you can find all of Nathan's social links as well as the link to his website. And if you've ever been curious about transformational work, I would highly encourage you connect with Nathan and see just how deep that curiosity goes. And of course, I'd like to thank all of you for taking time out of your days to listen to the podcast. It means the world to me, truly. I, I can't tell you how much I value your time, and the fact that you're willing to spend just a little bit of it with me means so much. So thank you again. If you'd like to show your support for the podcast, I could use a few more five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Those go a long way in helping others just like yourselves discover the content that is created here. One more time, thank you all so incredibly much. And until next time, take care, do better, and be well. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.